Good morning and good evening, everyone. This is a new version of Healthcast, the Center for Management of Health Services at IIM Ahmedabad. The podcast we have launched this year. Today we have with us Dr. Mehun Mehta, who is the Chief Medical Officer at the Albright Stonebridge Group and a faculty at Harvard Medical International. Also, he is uh, affiliated with a lot of his past scholarly work uh, with the LV Prasad Eye Institute and the Wellcome Trust funded center over there. So thank you, Mehu, Mehu, for joining us in this conversation. Thank you, Chirantan. Today, uh, Mehu, we are going to chat a little bit about the future of clinical trials and COVID-19 beyond what, what are we learning from COVID-19. So just some opening remarks from you. I mean, there's a lot of conversation that has been happening since the first Pfizer vaccine release data and got, and got approval in UK. And now we have the India approvals as well. Uh, country by country. Before that, we saw Covax, uh, Sinovac approvals and um, uh, Gamalaya approvals. And even before that, pharmaceutical productivity and R&D uh, enthusiasts were talking about how clinical trials may be a big drag to pharmaceutical innovation and productivity. So if you have some opening thoughts on what are you observing and what your general reaction is to the future of clinical trials post the pandemic. Yeah, sure. Thanks for first inviting me and speaking to your students and your audience. Um, I think if you just step back, uh, look what happened in the last one year. We had a pandemic. We didn't know it was a novel pathogen. And literally, we pivoted to having a vaccine out in a year, right? Now, this is unprecedented in terms of what it's taken to build vaccines in the past. Uh, and then if you see why this happened and what are the lessons we can learn, I think that is that forms a very interesting uh, case study. This whole mm -hmm. pandemic is a case study in terms of how do you take something as fundamental as a new pathogen and figure out how you're going to treat it because you have to now treat the world for it. And how can you create the entire process of discovery to translating that to the bedside not really actually uh, cutting the corners of the main components that go into it, but optimizing the whole process in a very, very, very uh, compressed timeline and get out something that we know uh, from all the data that's coming out has effectivity. It crosses the 50% threshold and benchmark. So I think this sets up a very interesting discussion on what can we learn? Because one thing I just say, if I really have to step back, is the pandemic has forced us to rethink everything. Yeah. And it, is, it has forced us to rethink everything simply because we had to respond. Yeah. And a lot of the ways we approached things in medicine, in regulation, in discovery, in application, we had to throw out of the window. Mm -hmm. And I think a lot of those are not coming back. Many will come back, and even if they will come back, they'll come back in a very different way. So yes, it is a new paradigm, and it is a new normal, but the question is, do we want to rest at a normal, or how can we use this to continuously improve and optimize, but do it in a manner that's safe and effective? Okay. Um, so one of the old normals came from the thalidomide scandal, and the FDA tightened up, at least in the mm -hmm. US. And uh, from then, you would say, here comes another shock. Let's say the medicine regulatory system has faced, and it has shown its own um, 
compromises, I would say, on science versus effectiveness versus safety. And now we have these vaccines. Some are 90% plus, some are uh, greater than 50% plus, the WHO specified standard. And along the way, you also have these Indian versions of vaccines that have been launched, which are called as emergency restricted, uh, emergency restricted User. approval in clinical trial mode, which yeah, is right. uh, a new language that the regulator locally is using. Um, also, we know along the way what has happened in these vaccine cohorts is the old vaccine makers like Sanofi or Merck have actually played cautious. Uh, they, I mean, if you have uh, if you have been following the innovation race here, they are taking it slow at the same time. And um, what does this all mean for patients? How should patients think about vaccines and taking vaccines? Just before I started this podcast, I got a message from a friend in the US saying, hey, I'm not going to take even the Pfizer vaccine because I have allergies and my kids have allergies. Um, and here in India, we are having this debate on how safe is for vaccine, et cetera, et cetera. So how should the patient think about it? If you can help yeah. with some algorithm yeah. on this process. Yeah. Yeah. So I think there are lots of things you've asked and let me unpack it and make it simple. I'll, I'll simplify it for you. So let's take it step by step. First of all, um, the vaccines that emerged in one year, what happened to make them emerge? Right? And the thinking is, oh my God, it was one year compression of time. Normally it's 15 years for a vaccine. There must be something that was done that is actually not thought through. So let's really think about that. In the past, when there was a epidemic of an infectious disease and one had to develop a vaccine of a novel pathogen, the, the, the situation was the following. Most of the epidemics of infectious diseases started in low and middle income countries. Right? Mm -hmm. The cohort of patients or population affected by the epidemic is limited. Mm -hmm. And frankly, vaccines as a prophylaxis is not a money-making space. It mm. is really public health space. So now in, in the past, you had a few, a small population in a part of the world that is emerging economically uh, that was affected. And really, it was no, there's not a commercial drive to go. So you had to have WHO or Gavi or the Gates Foundation mm. or these multilateral institutions to say, let's fund it and do it. Mm. Now, what happens there is that funding is limited. Anyway, there is a, a concern going into vaccines. There are few manufacturers that want to do it. So everything becomes linear. You first mm -hmm. have to figure out, oh my God, what is the pathogen? How does it act? What is the biology? What is the structure? Create animal models. <clears throat> then you take the animal models and you look at then, what can you do in the animal models to tackle it? Then you go through the process of doing, you know, tackling it with certain types of vaccines that you start developing. That whole process takes many years. Then you go through phase one, then you go through phase two, phase three, then you get approval. And assuming somebody funds all this, then you get some manufacturer who only after they see the results will manufacture and then you distribute. Right. Now, the cohorts of patients are limited. So your phase one takes time, your phase two takes time. And the people vested in this are limited. You have a pandemic. The mm -hmm. whole world is your cohort. Mm. The whole world is vested. So what has happened is resources from everywhere have been thrown in. Mm. That's the first thing to remember. So when you're taking something that is so limited to something that's global, 
you're going to actually see speed, right? Mm -hmm. Because it's all, every single lab that I know of who could pivot it to look at COVID, every single lab. Mm -hmm. Look at the power of that. The second thing is that once we knew this was a coronavirus in mm -hmm. January, and that's when the Chinese uh, from Wuhan put the whole genomics up, right? Mm -hmm. We knew we had seen this before because mm. we had seen SARS and MERS. Mm. So all the development work that had been done in terms of biology and all, this was the first cousin. Right? It's just changed the spike. It's changed some of the areas, that it, uh, the way it attacks the cells. So all that work that was done on the animals immediately came into use. So you mm -hmm. cut down that entire time. Mm -hmm. Suddenly you were able to say, you know, we had actually even looked at things for an RNA virus. We had actually looked at things with Ebola also. So let's pull from there. So the work that we had done, SARS, MERS, Ebola, I the significant drivers to speed up the initial, what is the vaccine strategy process, right? There were people who were working on, let's look at Oxford. They were working on looking at uh, malaria vaccination, right? right? They right. already created the platform. They had already tested it in patients. Right. So you see people who pivoted. Mm. Was, it's not a question of why did Pfizer pivot and why did Merck not pivot. Who had the ability, based on the work they had done, to really mm -hmm. pivot fast? Mm -hmm. And so Oxford could pivot. Bio and tech, because the work on mRNA that was being done for many years, first at UPenn, by this brilliant scientist who really was working and at that stage, she was pushing it while nobody was really paying attention to her. She realized that this is a terrific way to deliver vaccines. So we'll right. talk of platforms in a second. So let's talk of timing. So now you have the speed because you have available science that's ready. And everybody who had available science took the lead in the race. Other people wanted to enter, but they are much late, earlier because they had to develop things themselves. Now you go through the phases, phase one, phase two, phase three. Populations to do vaccination with populations to really tackle huge numbers, right? Because the pandemic's exploding. It's not that you have a localized epidemic in one part of the world or a localized mm. spread, huge numbers. Then we know that phase one, post-animal phase one is under 100 and phase two is a couple of hundred and then phase three goes to tens of thousands. You actually can compress phase one and phase two. Mm -hmm. So you can it. You're not saying I'm not doing phase one, but you can say phase one and phase two is the cohort numbers just increase. You're looking at the same thing, you know, safety, effectivity, response, and trying to get your dosing right. Phase three is still the same cohort. Say so phase three, you're doing tens of thousands. So now you overlap. And then the most important thing that happened is manufacturing became at risk. Mm -hmm. You're not saying I don't want all the data to come out and then I'm going to figure out and then I'm going to manufacture, but you're saying manufacturing can become at risk. That's mm -hmm. what Serum Institute of India did. That's mm -hmm. what many people did. They're going to invest. If this vaccine doesn't work out, well, you know, it's more important to invest this kind of money now mm -hmm. so that we can respond to the pandemic. So you scale up manufacturing. So people were ready, right? Mm -hmm. That's what compressed the timeline from a development cycle perspective. Obviously, what happened on the authority side, they started to give emergency approvals. That means they say, we are still looking at data, but we see enough data that allows us to say there's an emergency approval, not a full approval. 
some vaccines have been fully approved. Like, you know, China and Russia decided to go to full approvals on their vaccines, and that's a separate story. But let's talk about how it is done for the main vaccines we are looking at, at least the ones you're talking about. So that's how this came about. Now, all vaccine platforms are not. Mm. Mm. And the second part of your question was, you know, built into that the concern that uh, are we looking at and how clinical trials were done? I think there were two parts in it, how, you know, patients were recruited. Uh, uh, can I be a little more specific and help you here? I yeah. think that may help you. So uh, the UK regulator, uh, MHRA, used the UK arm of the AstraZeneca trials, if I'm not wrong, and used yeah. that data to approve. The Brazil arm protocol was violated and that was not used as data. But in India, we don't know which arm's data has been used yeah, for right. shield approval. So, mm -hmm. and the, the other sociological story here is India has never historically had a vaccine hesitant crowd. People mm -hmm. have, like, if you look at smallpox and the history of smallpox vaccination, people have been, have as a society, adopted vaccines, unlike, let's say, in the US. But with this, process of approval where we don't know what data is being used, would we create a false sense of, at one end, hesitancy, and at the other end, a false sense of, okay, all is okay, and that could create the risk of a spike again tomorrow for the virus? That's my concern. Yeah, I understand. So, okay, to answer your concern, your uh, the question is, what data do they use? Let's step mm -hmm. back and say, what are these platforms? Because there's mm -hmm. confusion about the platforms. The simple way to look at platforms is they bucket themselves into three platforms. Mm -hmm. The first is a platform that uses an, an the virus or parts of the virus made outside. So mm -hmm. you take the virus, you kill it, which is the Bharat Biotech ICMR approach, which is an established technology. We've done it for other, you know, pandemics. Because, and, uh, yeah. uh, you've done it. We kill the virus. We know how to do it. We give it, we give it with adjuvants because you have to give it with adjuvants. So that's the first. Let's talk of data in a second. The second technology or platform is to say, if I, why do I give even parts of a virus? Can I avoid it? Can I find which part of this virus is the most important to create an immune response against? Right. And if we create an immune response, we can actually block it from entering the cell. Right. It turns out to be the spike. Hmm. The spike, because of the coronavirus, it has all these spikes, looks like a crown, it's called corona. The spike is critical to enter the cell because that's the key that opens this receptor in the cell called ACE2 to enter. Now, the, the question was, can you actually have the cell? Because our cells produce protein all the time, right? Mm -hmm. It's a constant process. So can you instruct the protein production me mechanism in the cell to produce the spike? Mm -hmm. Now your cell produces a spike. It's a very, it's a very elegant way to do it because you don't have to give it outside, kill the virus, adjuvenate it and all that. And if there's any concerns in the past, they were around adjuvants, what are the adjuvants you're putting in? Aluminum was, you know, they say culpable for certain conditions. What is the role of an adjuvant for my MBA students? If you can describe so an adjuvant, so when you, when you give a vaccine, let's say you give a, you kill the virus and give it, the amount of, um, antigenic exposure that you're giving to the body is limited by how much you can vaccinate. Mm -hmm. right? So in order to boost the immune response, you, you connect it or you give it with certain chemicals mm -hmm. or substances that can create an inflammatory immune response. So uh -huh. it, it's like turbo boosting, it, right? 
because you're limited to the dosing you can give from outside, you're giving a live virus or you're giving a weakened virus. Right. You can, or you can create parts of the virus outside and give it, which is called recombinant technology. Mm-hmm. You need an adjuvant. Now, adjuvants, remember our immune system has two cell, two, two parts to it, very simply put. One is the antibodies and one is the cell-based immunity. They are both right. equally important. Antibodies is more immediate. Cell-based immunity lasts much longer. Right. Now, adjuvants want to boost that. Mm. They want to boost that. Therefore, you have to mix them because some adjuvants create more of antibody response, some create more of cell-based response. Mm-hmm. Use the body to produce part of the virus and the most important being the part, you don't need to adjuvate, adjuvenate it because you are actually using the body's own mechanism and multiple cells are producing internal to the body. Okay. Now, how do you make the body cell produce it? Well, you have to instruct the cells to produce mm-hmm. this particular type of protein or spike. Mm-hmm. How do you instruct it? Well, you can actually use another virus, mm-hmm. change its DNA mm-hmm. with the DNA sequence you want, that virus goes into the body, it infects the cell just like it would, it releases the DNA, the DNA goes into the cell's nucleus and it instructs the cell's protein mechanism through messenger RNA. So the intermediate between that is the messenger RNA. Messenger RNA is just taking the message. It has the sequences for the protein production part of the cell Mm. to produce the spike. Okay. Mm. That is the basis of many, many vaccine platforms. Oxford is, AstraZeneca is a a virus. It's an adenovirus. Mm. That is the carrier, right? Mm. Mm. Johnson & Johnson is an adenovirus. Mm. Russia is an adenovirus. Mm. Sinovac is an adenovirus. Different adenoviruses. Mm. Now, when you go down that path... But this is not the mRNA platform that you are talking about. No. I'll okay. come to mRNA. The third okay. is mRNA. Okay. So it's important when you think of all this, you think of what you're getting. It's it's like saying, I want transportation, right? Mm-hmm. Now, are you taking a bus? Are you mm-hmm. taking a car? Mm-hmm. Are you taking a ship? They're mm-hmm. all transportation. Are you taking mm-hmm. a bicycle? Mm-hmm. So broadly, this is the way to divide it. Um, in my, this is, I'm giving a simple framework. To yeah, divide. Yeah, yeah. So let's just talk of, of the Vectored vaccines, they, this adenovirus and all come under vectored vaccines. You're taking a vector mm-hmm. to deliver the sequence. So what's the good news about this? You're not delivering the virus. You're delivering a code. Right. The other good news is you're going into the body and the body can amplify this. So you're right. not giving any adjuvants. But you're using a vector. Now, when the body's immune system looks at this vector, it's going to say this is an infection in and of itself. It's a virus. So it will react against the vector and therefore you have the problem of vector immunity. So if you have been affected by the virus before, Mm -hmm. then chances are that when when the virus is injected, the the vaccine is injected with that vector, the body's immune system will kill the carrier before it can do its job. So the choice of adenovirus you choose has many things to take into account. Is it safe? Is it being used before? Because it goes to the nucleus, you have to worry about those things. It's it's DNA virus, it's an adenovirus. So Oxford decided to choose a chimpanzee adenovirus. Why? 
because in their study in, in, in Africa, when they were doing it for malaria, they found only 1% of the population had immunity against that vector. Mm -hmm. uh, if you look at what Johnson & Johnson have done, they've chosen adenovirus 26 mm -hmm. because that's less common to infect humans than adenovirus 5. And what I Russia... Yeah, go ahead. And what Russia did is they said that anyway, if you understand immune response, you have to give the first dose and then you have to give the second dose to get a good boost response. Mm -hmm. So you're giving two doses. Russia said if we give the same adenovirus twice, the second time we give it, it will the immune system will be primed and will attack it. So we'll give two different adenoviruses. So okay. they start with 26 and they go to five. That's okay. the sequence Russia has, right? So that's vectors and vector immunity. Now, could we mm -hmm. use some other virus? Yeah, people are looking and saying, could we use rabies virus? And that's all happening. That's very early development, right? Yeah. Could we use some other way to do this? So that's the vector. The third is mRNA. Mm -hmm. Now, mRNA, what is mRNA? All our cells have messenger RNA. M stands for messenger. Messenger RNA takes the instructions from the DNA from the cell's nucleus through the cytoplasm to the protein production mechanism gives it to the protein production mechanism, and then after a certain period of time, 36 hours, self is destroyed by the cell's own mechanism. That's what messenger RNA does constantly. So this scientist, Hungarian lady scientist in, 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 in Penn, who came to Penn said, why can't I use messenger RNA to instruct the body to produce proteins to treat disease? Okay. Right. Now, the way you do that, so if you have these proteins that your body needs, certain protein types, it can be produced. If I see a cancer cell and I actually know that the structure of the cancer cell is X, mm -hmm. certain structure, I can get the body's cells protein mechanism instructed by the mRNA to produce that protein. It gets produced in the cell, it comes out of the immune system, the immune system recognizes it and says, Oh my God, this is foreign. We have to attack it. It scans the body, finds these cancer cells and destroys them. That is immunotherapy. That's a form of immunotherapy. That's why they are saying the COVID-19 mRNA vaccines can also solve cancer potentially going forward. Well, it's a platform to do lots of things. Yeah. It's a very novel platform to deliver. Now, this, so these guys who are already doing it for cancer said, if I can produce a protein for cancer, why can't I produce a part of the coronavirus, mm -hmm. the spike. And that's exactly what the mRNA is doing. It's coded for the spike. Now, the, the question is, what has made it, why did it not occur before? Because when you inject mRNA, the body destroys it immediately. It's a foreign protein, right? Okay. So they had to engineer the mRNA to be stable. Okay. And when it goes in the cells to really push and amplify protein production, that they did by changing the mRNA sequences. By the way, mRNA is completely synthetically produced outside, completely. Mm -hmm. And they coated it in a nanoparticle. Mm -hmm. Now, what is this nanoparticle? It's a lipid layer mm -hmm. under which this single strand of messenger RNA sits. It's a nanoparticle, it's very small. Mm -hmm. And it, at least for the Pfizer one, it's got a very fine film of polyethylene glycol around it. Okay. And the allergic reactions you're seeing are likely due to polyethylene glycol that's around it. Okay. At least that's okay. what the scientific thinking is so far. Okay. Now, in order to 
stabilize the lipid layer, mm -hmm. it has to be kept at a particular temperature. Okay, so that's where the discussion of the cold, cold storage comes. Come. Now, you can engineer the lipid in such a way that it doesn't require cold chain, but every time you, you switch one parameter, you give up on the other. Mm -hmm. So what what does a vaccination want to want to uh, achieve? Uh, what does achieve, right? So just to finish the story, with mRNA, when you give a nanoparticle, it escapes recognition by the immune system. Therefore, there is no built-in immunity against mRNA. The immunity comes against the spike that it goes and instructs each cell to produce when it in, mm -hmm. goes into the cell. So you can give the vaccine repeatedly. Mm -hmm. While if you have a vectored vaccine, once immunity against the vector occurs, vaccine is less and less effective. Uh -huh. Okay. So you see, there are it, this. This is the science of this is really built about balancing all these things and seeing what is the most effective way to do this. So, so, may, may I hold just one small thing yeah. here, yeah. Dr. Fauci. I was attending uh, one of Dr. Fauci's talks uh, mm -hmm. at the Johns Hopkins University, and he was saying one of the key mechanisms to make sure that all of this works out stably in the next two, three year horizon is to have an adverse event monitoring system. Because Correct. especially mRNA is so novel a platform that we need to make sure that we are following and understanding the data that's coming. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, is that why certain countries are a little more cautious about mRNA and then are allowing for these uh, vector vector vaccine, vaccines? The vectors uh, are also new. It's not that vectors have been there or around. Mm. The best way to think of it is divide vaccines into two buckets. There's the old established technology, there's the new technology. Mm. Mm. The new technology is saying, why are we giving the pathogen? Why are we giving adjuvants? Let's actually do it in a way that the body expands it internally. Self-correcting mRNA goes away in 36 hours. The adenovirus vector is destroyed completely. Body produces it, and we don't even touch the creation of a, the virus. The old technology or the established technology is take the virus, kill it, take the virus and make a weak strain, take the virus and produce parts of the virus outside and inject those parts. Those mm -hmm. are the older technologies. Mm -hmm. Those are the established technologies. So, and you must understand the whole science space of vaccination is very conservative. Mm. They don't like big shifts. But we, we are moving to the mRNA side and the vectored side because it's a much more efficient way to deliver it. In the first instance, in certain types of vaccines, you can't deliver to immunocompromised patients because what happens if you take a weak vaccine and you know they're they're immunocompromised, it becomes a strong vaccine for them and they can get the disease and all that. So this shifts the whole thing away. And so as a platform, mRNA would have become a vaccine platform. It just became faster, right? Mm -hmm. Now, in terms of Dr. Fauci saying, None of these uh, trials end at phase three. They mm. continue. The other thing people have to realize is that the phase three approvals that have come out, at least in the US, everything is under emergency approval right now, yeah. have been approved for the first set of patients. That is the patients where you needed the protection the most. They're adult, mm. right? They, 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 they may have comorbid conditions, but they're not immunocompromised. They're not children. Under 16, they are not pregnant women. We now trials for all these subsets are going on. It's not that trials have ended. Mm -hmm. And after phase three, 
there'll be continuous monitoring as an extended phase three and also what we call in you know clinical trials phase four which is post-market surveillance you're looking right. for adverse events you're looking for negative outcomes so and as you know much better than i do uh, Chirantan, when you when you do these multi-centric randomized double blind mm. clinical mm. trials what are you saying you're saying statistically my sample that mm -hmm. i have taken is a representation of what the broader population is right and therefore what i see here will be representative of what i see in the broader population that's mm -hmm. basically the, the the mathematical basis mm -hmm. of a, of that sort of structure which means that if you did not see a very very severe uh, adverse reaction mm -hmm. and they've graded severity everybody's going to get some vaccine reaction right? that's part of vaccination right mm -hmm. you're going to have a sore arm you're going to have redness you're going to have to feel you know headache and you see that some people didn't see anything some people felt you know a little sick for a day or two and they were fine they were fine um which is what you call reactogenicity so you need immunogenicity and reactogenicity so immunogenicity you need high you need mm -hmm. the reaction low that's the optimum vaccine mm -hmm. but as you try and push immunogenicity high reactogenicity tries to go up did you see anything terrible now if you look at the data so far there was one or two cases of bell's palsy that occurred but they, which is really paralysis of the side of the face that reversed uh that occurred in i think one of the mrna vaccines i think moderna but that really reversed and they couldn't make a correlation because that occurs in the normal population also you must understand that when you do this what occurs in the normal population yeah. in your cohort may occur you know pfizer had to stop i mean uh, not pfizer uh, oxford had to stop trials because they had one case of transverse myelitis where the spinal cord inflammation occurred and correctly they stopped trials and correctly they are now watching to see is there any correlation so i think what you are seeing is the following pfizer did release its phase 3 interim data right uh, they had a wide spectrum uh, not pfizer i apologize pfizer released its full data phase 3 moderna has released phase 3 data oxford released its phase 3 interim data mm -hmm. it is published what they've submitted to the regulators, I don't know, because I'm not privy to that. And in that, you're right, that they had a big disparity between their efficacy in Brazil of 64, 65%. Mm -hmm. And what they showed when they had this dose uh, issue, right? right? So what happened is that this is what happens when you take vector vaccines. You have to be very tight in production. And vector vaccines, you have to make sure that, uh, that you're testing you're testing potency, you're testing dosing, you're testing, you know, because they are viruses, right? So you're taking mm -hmm. that whole production is, mRNA is all synthetic. Production is much mm -hmm. faster. It's mm -hmm. just in complexity of production. And Serum Institute has done a great job, you know, in terms of their ability to do it. Um, and you have to give them a lot of uh, credit for doing at-risk manufacturing. I mean, mm -hmm. it takes mm -hmm. guts to do it commercially, mm -hmm. okay? At this scale. So what happened is in when they were looking at a certain batch of doses, they the assessment of the potency suggested the potency was much higher mm -hmm. when it was not. It was really the way the assay was done. It was an assay issue. I think it was one of the production sites in Belgium or Europe somewhere. Mm -hmm. um, so they said cut the dose in half. Right. So they cut the dose in half. So they ended up actually giving half the dose and the full dose and that the, the half dose had a better 
response. But, so they, their data showed half doses a better response. Now, first of all, it wasn't part of the trial. Second, for hmm. second, right. it was a sub, subset of patients, right? Yep. Yep. Thirdly, all the patients, I believe, are under 55, and the real yeah. risk is patients over. But you do know that when you switch, I mean, this is all research science, right? When you switch the the research methodology, you yeah. create yeah. inbuilt errors of, 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 of conclusion, right? You get yeah. these errors. So I think when the regulators looked at it, the other thing that happened is in some cases, the second dose was supposed to be given after 28 days or somewhere around there. It got delayed to three months. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So you had these compounding errors going on and the U.S. said, go and clean up your data and come back. That's basically what the U.S. has said. Give mm -hmm. us a phase three data that's cleaner and they haven't approved it. What the, what the British regulators said is, let's look at all the data again. I think they went down and they completely disaggregated the data. They looked at it. They came to the conclusion that uh, it was less of a two-dose, half and full-dose issue this is my understanding, but actually they could wait because if you see the dose response curves and and the risk for um, the risk for a COVID incidence, it sort of right the the it risk flattens out while the placebo or the, the in their case the other was a meningococcal vaccine uh, that they were the the their control arm the control risk goes up for COVID. This goes up for a couple of days because the immune system takes time to respond, like seven to 12 days, and then it flattens out. And they found that, okay, it's flattening out close to three months, so we can live with that and let's wait for the second dose because of the paucity of doses, because of the dose shortages. So that's what I believe the UK regulators looked at. I don't know in specifically because I have not seen the data. And I believe that's what the regulators in India must have looked at and said that, you know, this data looks, uh, it is efficacious, right? It is efficacious. So, so the, the, the point is that we believe, but we don't know. That's the issue, I think. And even if you look at, um, they haven't disclosed who is this committee making the decision and what yeah, is the that data. You're right. I mean, that you have to, I don't know where, how it happened in India. For and example, then the Bharat, media latches on, right? Media finds yeah. these odd patients who are potentially given the vaccine without the right side kind of informed consent. And then there are these hesitancy stuff. That, I mean, the other thing that I'm noticing is that, let's say there are two types of scientists in India. At one end, you have Dr. Gagandeep Kang, who has talked about this issue of lack of transparency and being cautious about taking the vaccine. At the other end, you have Dr. Vijay Raghavan, who is the Principal secretary, uh, principal scientific advisor to the PMO, who is saying it's okay to try it out. And then, as for the common person, I'm not mm -hmm. a medic. I teach pharmaceutical economics, but I'm not a medicine person. How? What do I tell right. my house or how, like my maid was asking that? Uh, how should we deal with it? And <laughs> I said, just be cautious. Let's wait for a little bit and see what data is coming, and then we can think about what to do. So, how does the yeah. common man? And my students are asking, right. how does the common man decide here? That would be nice to discuss. Yeah, so I'm, so I'm, I tell you one thing, I'm fully, personally, in all my work, have been in favor of data transparency. You have to show the data, right? I can see the phase three data published in New England Journal of Medicine for, for Pfizer. I can see. Exactly. You know, I can see the data, if I want to, on Moderna and what they got EU approval on, you know, emergency approval. Um. To be fair, Pfizer published all its phase two, uh, phase three interim data 
And then the final data, maybe there is a source. Maybe I know Oxford has said, AstraZeneca said is completely open. And I believe them because, you know, it's Oxford is involved. Oxford is mm. going to do it the right way. So it's all available there. One has to go and parse it out. I do know in case of Bharat Biotech, the data mm. that they submitted, it is a pre-pub paper that mm. they did mm. with ICMR. Mm. That's a phase one, two data set. It's mm. around over 300 patients. That's it. Right. And then when they did get emergency approval, they must have had more data. I don't know where to look at it. Mm -hmm. But your point is right. If you want to address, see, if you look at the studies on vac vaccine hesitancy, some hesitancy comes from entrenched beliefs, which is really hard to jump, uh, to bridge. Mm. Some hesitancy comes from because of lack of proper information. Exactly. And you need to actually, in things like this, when so much is at stake, I think, need to very clearly show the data for what it is, right? Mm -hmm. Now, in terms of uh, effectiveness, you know, if you have Brazilian study showing 65, UK study showing this mixed result, and and then they must have done most uh, data. I, honestly, I have not seen it. Doesn't mean it's not there. I'm not into this space of vaccinology. You know, it's not my expertise, mm -hmm. but I'm doing a lot of global health work. But, you know, it's important that that data be, it, it is presented to the population when you're going to vaccinate them, that this is what we saw, this is what the data looks like, right. this is what the efficacy is. And because you don't, you're not going to get mRNA in India, you know, it's going to sure. take time. And that's and, the other interesting thing, which is the Pfizer approval is in, I mean, the Pfizer submission is in, but it has not yet been approved. So I don't know what's the political economy there as to why that is not being approved and let yeah. uh, private markets deal with how Pfizer thinks about distributing it at whatever yeah. price. Um, so, um, okay, so that this is actually a good time for us to segue to the larger question we started the conversation with. Out of all of this, what do you see the future of clinical trials for biopharmaceuticals and vaccines? How do you see? Yeah, yeah. No, so let so that's a very that's why we are doing this talk. Um, I think my larger question is how can you accelerate? valuable drug discovery to bedside process right. in any country right? Right. right and therefore clinical trials is a means to an end mm -hmm. it is about the whole thing and i really feel you have to start out by let's talk about india india needs to be in the space where it becomes one of the global leaders in getting out drugs including trials to the bedside for the indian population that are meaningful to the diseases that we see as burdens of, 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 of disease and health, we need to have an ecosystem of discovery, translation research, and clinical research that is really robust. Mm -hmm. It's not just regulation. Regulation mm -hmm. is just one piece. It includes investment. Mm -hmm. So what are the different components that are missing? The first component that is missing is really creating an ecosystem of innovation and discovery at the level when you educate the healthcare professionals. Mm -hmm. We have to have the entire pathway of a physician scientist. Yes. Can I do an M, uh, MBBS, okay, an MD, PhD in India today? Can I get a joint degree? Very hard. Mm. Right? I don't think the MCI has approved dual degrees. Secondly, we need environments of research. Research just doesn't occur. Mm. Investments in ecosystems that can do life science, 
research in the you know either in the healthcare delivery hospital side or in the medical school side you have to do it and i don't want to exclude nursing schools because they also play a very important role mm-hmm. so you first have to develop the talent and the expertise and the knowledge to do research at scale mm-hmm. that has to occur with a system to do research where environments can occur where you can do research and an investment in supporting research and actually getting research technology or technology that can support research to occur let me give that you a case in point well we need it god i have, this is something that i have been trying to push why is it that we don't have a national genomic strategy mm-hmm. what is the how did they find the the mutations in in, in uk because they had the national uk genomics consortium you know surveillance in genomics is very important genomics affects all parts of medicine and, and discovery and science today why is it that certain countries in in our part of the world have taken global lead in genomics the beijing yeah. genomics institute does 30 to 40% yeah. of the world's gene sequencing yeah. Yeah. these are investments made can we be can we do car t in india as therapy which is you know t cell chimeric antigen therapy which is revolutionary for certain cancers so we have to invest in the infrastructure we have to invest in the funding of research discovery has to become a path so, you know it cannot be that a cohort of life scientists are you, you know considering the size of our country is so small we have to invest in that because the, the the rewards the rewards the economic rewards are rich and then we have to have a system where investors can put in risk money or early investment cycle money right. you don't have that ecosystem who's everybody wa- wants to invest when you have margins and markets yep who's going to take from discovery to translation who's going yep. to take from translation to clinical then you come to clinical and that also because i did a lot of work in clinical research in fact we set up the i was instrumental in setting up the first uh you know first initial types of site management organizations clinical research requires a certain rigor it requires a certain standard most importantly it requires a certain code of ethics now what it many countries did and i work very closely with the person who set up the first office of human research protection under president clinton mm-hmm. dr greg kosky set it up and what was that all about human subject protection right okay because you this dialogue and narrative can switch very quickly to experimentation mm-hmm. if you don't do it correctly versus benefit because if you can bring novel therapies and you can allow them to come in you can treat different types of cancers patients will benefit but they must make sure that it is done with the right ethical standards right so getting the irv structures very well corrected getting oversight done making sure all these things you're saying informed consent it has to be informed and it has to be consent it cannot be coercion and ignorance right you right. have to have informed consent there's there's a standard you have to adhere to getting our clinical research infrastructure in place why is it that we are we should be leading in clinical research i know world? i mean what worries me is that uh, what we should be doing not only have we not been doing but even with this kind of shock i don't see a taste or appetite towards that kind of a direction instead what i see is like ayurveda doctors will be 
allowed to do surgeries subject to certain conditions yeah. and ayush medicines uh, mm-hmm. like being pushed without enough science i'm nothing against ayush medicines but so long as it passes through the trial standards let's have those standards done and then we can think about the stuff yeah i don't know i mean that's my take um coming back to the question any uh, like last thoughts on clinical trials and biopharmaceuticals from the india perspective we will have a primarily india audience here in the podcast so any last thoughts on i do have i do have i think you know i'd very much like to see a national um, focus on building india's national healthcare data stack mm-hmm. much more than it is but it's not only the clinical data stack it is the biological tissue data stack mm-hmm. right it's the genomic data stack mm-hmm. it is doing predictive analysis on our own population for our own diseases right and then figuring out what is the most optimum therapy making sure that clinical research and drugs that we get are all drugs that are actually tailored to the type of ethnic diaspora we have in right. terms of response curves and all because you know if you see a lot of studies that we a lot of drugs that come out in the market many many of the drugs significant portion of the trials have been done in western populations exactly and i mean there, there, i can tell you there are certain studies where done in white caucasian male populations now mm-hmm. you tell me what is the you know ethnically phenotypically genotypically we are going to give that drug dosing to a female from south india and mm-hmm. think of the you know where is the corollary so, so this has been sorry i didn't want to interrupt you but I, this reminds me of a startup which i think is no longer around avestagen which mm-hmm. was trying to do the parsi genome and create a data yeah. stack for it um, um, yeah yeah exactly go ahead and go that's ahead. so important i have so many parsi friends who say i have g6pd right mm-hmm. i have g6pd deficiency can i do this can't i do this i said why doesn't the parsi community create its own data stack Mm-hmm. right how are these parsi communities why is it that they are g6pd what are the drugs what are the resource bases take it and build it because you know we are a heterogeneous country ethnically yeah. uh, you know culturally and we cannot be you know take a homogenous paint over the whole country and say this is how it's going to be there is no in fact i do think if we get into this there is so much power for the rest of the world mm-hmm. economic power we can wield right because we have the computation skills we have the intellect we have the the educational base we have the language power we have the i would say legal structures mm-hmm. right we have to put it together and focus on these things because these are all engines for growth for the future awesome thank you so much mehul uh, i think i really appreciate your time and thoughts i know you keep a very busy schedule and we appreciate your thought both on the science uh on vaccines and also on how india should create a data stack across the spectrum like you just mentioned in the last part of your session uh to create its own indigenous self sufficiency in understanding diseases and solving it for the long run i really appreciate it uh thank we will uh, we will uh, love to host you sometime in campus once things is thank you very much thank you thank you so much for having me bye